Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 23, August 23rd through August 29th, 1861. Last week, we talked about the aftermath of Wilson's Creek, the 79th New York Mutiny, and we finished with a brief talk about Civil War medicine. This week, we will talk about Hatteras Inlet and get into the navies of both North and South. At the bottom of the episode, I hope to piggyback off our discussion of amputations and get into amputees and their fate after the war. First, let's head to the Outer Banks, which this time of year does sound pretty nice. We have talked about how the Union Navy was given the large task of setting up a blockade of the southern ports. There were several places blockade runners and raiders could hide, especially in North Carolina. Now, if you are not aware, the Outer Banks is a strip of land away from the northern section of the North Carolina coast. Pamlico Sound separates the banks from the North Carolina mainland. In the Sound are such cities as New Bern and Elizabeth City. The Confederates had constructed two forts, Hatteras and Clark, between Hatteras Island and Oracoke Island to protect the entrance into the Sound. From these positions, merchant vessels could be spotted and a signal could be given to a Confederate raider to potentially sail out and snatch the prize. Elimination of this threat would be important to the Union war effort and the elimination of the raiders and blockade runners. Silas Stringham would command the Atlantic Blockading Squadron and team up with troops under the command of Benjamin Butler for an assault on these positions. Stringham was born in 1798 and had been in the U.S. Navy since 1810. Essentially, he had served in the U.S. Navy his entire life. As a younger man, he had participated in the War of 1812 and then fights with the Barbary Pirates. During the Mexican-American War, he had participated in the naval assault at Veracruz. Now, in 1861, he was tasked with helping to bottle up the Confederate economy. The fleet would consist of seven warships. And the assaulting party under Butler had three New York regiments, along with artillery supported by sailors and Marines. Butler, being the complex figure that he was, would not get along with Stringham. In fact, we see in other places during the Civil War, and certainly in conflicts throughout history, there being a rivalry between branches. In World War II, we see the Navy, Army, and Marines at odds in the Pacific, for instance. Still, some were able to persevere to accomplish the task at hand. North Carolina state troops manned the defenses of the Outer Banks, but there were only a thousand or so men tasked to do this. In addition, it is surprising the defenses of Clark 
and Hatteras were under ill repair. Union prisoners had been allowed to view the works and reported back to the Naval Department. Now, as previously mentioned, there would be a conflict between branches of the military. Stringham was told that the operation would be under the Navy, and so would not count on Butler or his forces. The fleet sailed down to the forts on August 28, 1861. His ships would begin to bombard Fort Clark, moving in a circular formation. Thus, they were able to fire on the fort and then circle around to reload. Fort Clark returned fire, but soon ran low on ammunition and the fort was abandoned. Stringham then focused his fire on Fort Hatteras, which he thought was also surrendering. Under their fire, the colors of the fort had been badly damaged and were not raised again. The USS Monticello sailed close to investigate, but ran aground and took some fire from the fort. A few sailors were wounded, but otherwise, the ship took little damage. During the first day of fighting, Butler was having a tough time landing his troops in the rough surf. Enough men were landed to fend off a Confederate counterstrike, but not enough to launch an actual assault. Reinforcements for the Confederates were able to arrive in the night. The second day opened with more punishing fire from Stringham's ships. Soon, the fort was forced to offer terms. Butler would only accept absolute surrender. 691 Confederates were taken prisoner. The South had lost four men killed and 20 wounded, whereas the assaulting Yankees lost only a single man and two wounded. This was an important early naval engagement in the war. Without successes on land, the North would turn to the Navy, which was arguably the bright spot of 1861. Speaking of the navies, let's get into a little bit more detail about what they looked like north and south. We have mentioned a little bit about the major players and strategies. We understand the Union strategy pretty well. Blockade the ocean ports and take out the defenses on the Mississippi, closing that water route out and cutting the Confederacy in half. While we have introduced the Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, in a previous episode. We should also note that Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Gustavus Fox, is also a key part in the creation and implementation of the naval plans. Fox had served in the Navy during the Mexican-American War. He was behind the plan to resupply Fort Sumter all the way back in our early episodes, being on board the Baltic. Fox would be key in approving the creation of the Monitor, class Ironclads, and the placement of one of the more iconic names in the Navy during the war, David Farragut. President Lincoln would say of Fox, he is the Navy Department. Additional ships would be needed as well as flat-bottom boats or shallow draft. For those of us who are not so nautically inclined, 
a shallow draft boat sits high close to the waterline. Thus, it is better used in shallow water as opposed to seagoing vessels. We will talk about these when operating in the Mississippi River Valley. Throughout the war, we will see the number of ironclads and ramming vessels swell to higher numbers. Just so we get an idea of what the organization looks like in the Navy, I would also want to run down the ranks and what they looked like at the end of the war. Warrant officers in the Navy are not commissioned, much in the same way when we talked about the Army. These would include midshipmen, master's mates, petty officers, and other specialized roles like carpenter and gunner, for instance. The commissioned officers started with the junior officer ensign. Above ensign would be master, who would navigate the vessel. Lieutenants would be then followed by commanders and then captains. Captains were usually in charge of a vessel. Commodores, rear admirals, and vice admirals would form the upper echelon of the naval command. The Confederate Navy would be organized in the same way, although we will see they are not as extensive. Manpower for the Navy in the South was an issue. Obviously, there was an emphasis to make sure the field armies of the Confederacy were manned, and not so much of an emphasis on the Navy that would never be able to compete with the North. Interestingly, about 17% of the Union Navy was made up of black sailors. Many of these freedmen would be instrumental in navigating through the rivers and coastal systems of the South. Despite their contribution, unfortunately, many white sailors would look down on such comrades. Now, with the Navy introduced, let's get into the initial strategy of the naval blockade and how it's doing. Early in the war, we mentioned how difficult it was for the Union Navy to blockade the rebel seaports successfully. Lack of ships to cover 3,500 miles of coastline is an issue. Only two admirals were assigned to break up this large space. So it's not hard to see how critical contemporaries and historians are of the blockading during 1861. In fact, 9 out of 10 blockade runners were able to escape detection and make their journey out into the ocean. That does not sound good, does it? If you were a pitcher in the majors and you gave up a homer 9 out of 10 times, then chances are you would not remain in the big leagues for very long. But this number is sort of deceptive. If we think about it a little bit closer, the Confederate Navy was focused on making lighter blockade runners. They went through great pains to convert smaller vessels and make them harder to spot. In fact, they would implement anthracite, which does not burn as black to hide their movements, instead of you know, coal. Speed so that the ships could outrun Yankee blockaders was the name of the game. If you are making a smaller vessel that is faster and harder to spot, then you probably are not making it very heavy with cargo. So although there was a good percentage of blockade runners that made their journey, they were not necessarily bringing home a huge boom to the Confederate economy. 
In fact, the exportation of cotton was down by over 90% by the end of the war. Still, blockade running would continue throughout the conflict, even with the increased presence of the U.S. Navy making things more difficult. Port cities would slowly be taken by federal forces, but even a large southern port city like Wilmington will not fall until 1864. Two trips could make the venture profitable for potential runners. Many captains would turn away from privateering, like we talked about in earlier episodes, throughout the war and move toward making more money on these runs. And to be clear, the destinations were usually in the Caribbean. Nassau and Cuba were popular ports, so they were not usually going all the way to Europe. This made the trip easier and not as long, so they could avoid detection. That way, they could trade with British vessels, Britain, you remember, being neutral. This would be the way in which the English would supply the southern war effort as well. We have talked a little bit about the Confederate Navy so far, but I do want to mention the only Secretary of the Navy for the South, Stephen Mallory. Mallory was from Key West, Florida, and served as a senator from the state before the war. While in the Senate, he serves on a committee for naval affairs, where he gets the experience necessary to become Secretary of the Navy for the Southern cause. Actually, Mallory's committee forced the retirement of one Matthew Fontaine Murray, who will go on to serve in the Confederate Naval Service. Murray had contributed to science with a study of currents during his time in the U.S. Navy. Needless to say, that you probably won't have a good relationship with the guy who got you fired. Mallory, though, would law out a strategy that under the circumstances was probably the best considering the odds stacked against them. Commerce rating, we have already mentioned, as well as the purchasing of materials and ships from abroad. We have not mentioned the focus on ironclads and naval technology. If you do not have as many ships as your enemy, then you probably should make the point to have the best ships you can get. Without going into it, there is a famous incident in Korea during the samurai invasion where there are only a few Korean ships, but they are turtles, or early armored vessels, and they manage to defeat a much larger Japanese force. The same concept will apply here. Mallory would order the building of ironclads, especially in the Mississippi River, to combat the slow anaconda grasp on that lifeline of the Confederacy. Many flat-bottomed ships could be converted to gunships as the river defense fleet. Naval technology would also be important. Torpedoes, or naval mines, would start to be deployed. We will see later a submarine that will be used in combat for the first time during the war as well. If there was to be an advantage had through some sort of technology or new development, the Confederate government and Stephen Mallory especially, were willing to give it a try. There are two more figures I want to mention from the Confederate Navy for now as an introduction. The first, Franklin Buckcannon, the second, Raphael Sims. 
Buck Cannon would be the only member of the Confederate Navy to achieve the rank of full admiral. Franklin was from Baltimore, Maryland, and would serve in the Mexican-American War. Before the Civil War, he was in charge of the Navy Yard in Washington, D.C. In fact, there was a fear that Buchanan would align himself with the Confederacy, a justifiable fear as it turned out. Abraham Lincoln would attend the wedding of Buchanan's daughter before Buchanan could resign his commission from the Navy. The former commander of the Navy Yard will go on to command the CSS Virginia, which faces off against the Monitor in 1862. Raphael Sims was also born in Maryland, but would be more heavily connected to Alabama, where he went on extended leave after the war with Mexico. There is even a town named Sims, Alabama, which speaks to his popularity. Sims would command the CSS Sumter and CSS Alabama, both successful Confederate raiders. The Sumter made around eight captures, while the Alabama was the most successful, making 65 captures during the war. The Alabama, needless to say, was a real terror on the Union merchant vessels. Sims was known to use tactics like flying the wrong flag to get closer to potential targets. Toward the end of the war, he would gain the rank of Rear Admiral. Actually, speaking toward the desperation that the South showed by the end of the war, Sims would command troops in the Army of Northern Virginia, known as the Naval Brigade, made up of former sailors who were now needed on land. After the conflict, Sims would teach at Louisiana State University. To close out this week, I want to continue our discussion of amputations by mentioning what happened after the war. Now, as we have already highlighted, there was a Victorian ideal of manliness and the defense of one's family and home. Providing for that family was part of that mindset. Now, there will be many soldiers returning to farms and jobs that will not be able to do that. Not being able to work would label you as not a productive or meaningful member of society. Pensions and prosthetics would be necessary to help these individuals. A pension system would be created in 1862 by the U.S. government. Unfortunately, the system defined some eligible for a pension as one who could no longer do manual labor. Because of this, many former soldiers would not apply or would try to prove that they were ineligible and could perform manual labor. As well as performing manual labor, some would struggle to prove that they could still be productive members of society and in the workplace doing things like learning to write with the offhand. Even if you did get a pension, it did depend on the injury and the rank. A private might expect to see only $8 or around $200 a month. In terms of prosthetics, there were a few options in 1861. A private from Virginia whose leg was amputated after Philippi would develop his own form of a prosthetic and sell it to others. This man's name was James Hanger, 
and today there is still a hangar ink. There was still a mental toll to wounded soldiers coming home. While it was not called PTSD, there were studies of soldiers who had battle fatigue. This is the groundbreaking of future studies into mental health that we know today. I think we can wrap it up right there. So this week, we got to talk about the Cape Hatteras incident with the U.S. Navy uh, having a very successful outing, uh, which is much needed by the Northern War effort. We also got to talk about the Confederate Navy as well as the Union Navy and sort of their strategies. And we closed out with a little discussion about amputees and their fate after the war. Next week, we will head back out to Missouri and see what's going on there. Introduce John C. Fremont fully into our story, as well as take a look at the first action that Ulysses S. Grant performs during the war in the seizure of Paducah, Kentucky. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, and Venmo information. And by the time this episode comes out, there should be an additional Patreon episode, the episode for the month of August here. Uh, so if you are interested, make sure to check that out. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be welcomed. Once again, feedback is appreciated. Questions, comments, concerns are all welcome, and the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>